DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Yesterday, we heard about the projected removal of 30,000 poor, elderly, or disabled Georgians from the state's Medicaid rolls. Before the interview, we reached out to the Georgia Department of Community Health, which responded after our deadline with the following. With the exception of approximately 68 individuals, the state Medicaid agency provided timely notice informing the beneficiaries of the need to renew their eligibility. Unfortunately, the individuals who did not participate in the renewal process were deemed ineligible and thus were removed from the Medicaid program. The state Medicaid agency is allowing those beneficiaries who were terminated for failing to complete the reestablishment of their eligibility the opportunity to complete the renewal process by August 31st, 2019. Our guests, AJC reporter Ariel Hart and Alyssa Haber, staff attorney at the Georgia Senior Legal Hotline, heard a different story from far more than 68 people. Well, you can listen to that conversation by going to the Programs tab at gpbnews.org and clicking on Yesterday's On Second Thought. You've no doubt heard about Venezuela's ongoing economic and political crisis. Well, we're going to hear from a member of Georgia's Venezuelan community. But first, some background. Back in 2007, the authoritarian government of Hugo Chavez effectively shut down RCTV, the nation's most influential private cable channel. That decision sparked protests across the country. Atlanta's Venezuelan community demonstrated locally, too. Isabella Gomez Sarmiento, who was 10 at the time, learned from her parents to value freedom of expression and an unfettered press. The recent Georgia State University graduate now exercises those rights as a columnist for Teen Vogue. Well, this fall, she joins NPR as a recipient of the prestigious Croc Fellowship and joins us now in the studio. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations. Thank you. You were born in the U.S. but spent much of your childhood in Venezuela. Your family moved back in 2004 because of the political climate under Chavez. So how did those experiences influence your decision to pursue journalism? I think from a very young age, um, my household was very politically aware uh, because we had to immigrate due to political circumstances. My parents um, always taught us kind of the importance of uh, paying attention to the news, paying attention to current events, and um, the importance of free press and press censorship. So I kind of grew up with those values, and they really influenced my interest when I was picking a career. When you became editor-in-chief at the school newspaper at Sprayberry High School in Cobb County, now you write about politics for Teen Vogue. How did you get that gig? Um, It was a little unorthodox, actually. Um, uh, Teen Vogue was running a story about the anniversary of the Kent State Massacre, Um, And I tweeted them and I said, that was uh, two years ago in 2017, I tweeted them and I said, well, there's students dying in Venezuela right now. Why aren't you guys covering that? And their wonderful politics editor, Alison Maloney, reached out to me and she said, well, why don't you do it? Send me some pitches. So I did. Wow. So that that easily. (laughs) This is the age of social media. But Teen Vogue has made quite a pivot from covering, you know, boy bands and makeup tips Mm -hmm. to politics, activism, identity issues in recent years. This is a brand shift that has been both praised and noted with a lot of surprise by media watchers and consumers. Do you ever hear that from people, you know, Teen Vogue covering news? I get that all the time. So what do you say? I mean, I say, you know, young people are aware of what's happening in the world. Young people are capable of understanding news, of analyzing politics, of being involved. And um, 
I think it's really inspiring that Teen Vogue is mobilizing young people in that way and challenging them to rise to that type of coverage from a young age. And one of the few uh, who are doing it, from yes, what I hear. definitely. So in your column, you've covered government employees who couldn't afford menstrual products during last year's shutdown, female farm workers whose voices have not been amplified by Me Too, and recently your personal reflection on Georgia's new Life Act, the result of the much-argued heartbeat bill. So how do you gravitate toward these stories? Um, I think they're all topics I'm somewhat interested in to begin with. I was involved with a nonprofit here in Atlanta um, that donated pads and tampons to local homeless shelters. So menstrual equity has always been big on my mind. And when I knew that um, it was something government workers were struggling with during the shutdown, I you know, gravitated towards that story. Um, being an immigrant and you know, being a young woman, I'm obviously very aware of, of gender. So um, the farm worker story, again, I feel like was something that was being left out of the Me Too movement. And I thought it was... Um, a really interesting thing to cover because obviously, you know, farm worker women's labor makes its way into everybody's homes every single day. Um, and it's something we're not always aware of. So I, I think in general, I've because I've always been so politically active, I'm very um, interested in activism and social causes and kind of the different ways we can amplify that through journalism. Well, and that works as a columnist, sharing your perspective on issues that you're passionate about. But the Croc Fellowship, this is about creating the next generation of reporters following this core tenet of journalism. Objectivity acknowledges acknowledging any bias that you have. So do you think that the standards of journalism are changing when so much news is tied to identity politics? Um, I think in a way it is changing. And I think we're seeing challenges to what people define as objective and what people define as an identity and what's not considered an identity from a reporter. Um, I think uh, with seeing the field hopefully becoming more diverse in the future, um, we're kind of starting to challenge those notions. But I do think objectivity is still important. And I'm very excited that um, the fellowship is going to give me an opportunity to move away from opinion writing and kind of gain more hands on skills with um, objective reporting and audio engineering and, you know, all these things that I haven't been able to be exposed to this far in my career. Well, so. it is a super competitive fellowship. But you are joining the ranks of all things considered host Elsa Chang, NPR national correspondent Hansi Lawang and Sam Sanders of It's Been a Minute. But this is a this is a real job or it could be a real job. And right now, many journalists like you have been operating as freelancers, you know, as institutions. In fact, Teen Vogue, printed edition, stopped publication in 2017. So are you concerned about becoming a journalist, joining this field at a time when there are big concerns about how the financial model is going to be continued? Definitely. And I think, you know, talking with other people my age, other young journalists, I think the media landscape is a very frightening one to be entering right now. Um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about what's happening. You know, you see every day, it seems like every day there's layoffs um, at a different, you know, notable uh, media publication. But um, but we're hopeful. And I mean, you know, I think anybody who's doing journalism right now is doing it because they love it. And we want to see the field change and we want to see the field become a place that can keep accommodating reporters and can keep accommodating um, as many voices as possible. Well, even the work you've done so far, you've been at CNN as an intern, mm -hmm. Teen Vogue, now at NPR. Can you tell us any of your reflections on the differences between those institutions and how they operate? Definitely. Um, I think the biggest... Uh, the biggest shock for me was gravitating from, you know, being a, a part-time freelancer for Teen Vogue to being in office at CNN all the time. Um, I had never been in a newsroom before, especially a newsroom of that scale. But um, it's a different rush that you get, you know, being able to be with a team that you're working with all the time, be um, 
you know, around that many people when there's breaking news, work with other people. I was a freelancer. It's just kind of me in a Google Doc with my editor. So it's it's really exciting to get to be in a newsroom and, and you know, get to see the entire process of how those stories come to life. You have to pitch a story or some stories of interest, don't you, for the Kroc Fellowship application? Yes, Okay, so what are the stories that you want to tell? So I pitched my uh, two-minute pitch during my interview was um, about a program in Ecuador. It's a nonprofit. It's a program where um, filmmakers from the city go into rural communities and train young girls and women um, on how to create their own short films, oftentimes dealing with sexual violence. Ecuador is the second country in Latin America with um, highest rates of pregnancy from girls 14 and younger. So um, the organization really kind of works to help uh, the girls manage that trauma through filmmaking and through um art and, you know, harvesting those technical skills. So my story was kind of about that and trying to incorporate something that's so uh, visually driven into a radio format. Um, and clearly they were interested. So. That's going to be interesting working with the voice instead of images and just words. When do you go? Uh, in September. Well, best of luck to you. And again, congratulations. Thank you so much. Georgia State graduate, Teen Vogue columnist, and now NPR Croc fellow, Isabella Gomez Sarmiento. Thanks so much. Thank you. The Mueller testimony. There was no collusion with Russia. Heartbeat bills. Floods in the Midwest, droughts in South Georgia, and Avengers Endgame still raking it in. Far above the churning headlines, Tina and Grayson Haver Curran join the quieter set through hiking the Appalachian Trail, meaning the whole stretch from Georgia to Maine. Hello from the Nanahala National Forest in, I wish I could say sunny North Carolina, but it's more like soggy, muggy, boggy North Carolina today. We left Amicola Falls 12 days ago, and it has the unofficial beginning of the Appalachian Trail called the Approach Trail. Start at the arch. That's what they say to do, to get your picture under the fancy arch, and then you climb what feels like an Everest-sized mountain of stairs up to the top of a fantastically beautiful waterfall. But by the time you're getting there, at least if you're me, your entire body is a waterfall of sweat that rivals the waterfall. We are checking in with the husband and wife team via voice memo from time to time. They've already gone through a couple of trials and tribulations. First tears of the trail, but I'm happy to say only tears of the trail so far. Uh, we, we were told that we got to Chattahoochee Gap, and we were told to basically follow the water down, which is what we did. For too many miles. <laughs> um, and we ended up bushwhacking through the bank, along the banks of the Chattahoochee's head, headwaters for about a mile, mile and a half, and down several thousand feet, and then realized that we had gotten wrong directions but we climbed back to the trail, freezing shoes, very wet, very sweaty, very tired, but we were able to make camp and stay safe. And discovered communities of like-minded rovers in a system of huts and hostels and what's known along the trail as bubbles. We are uh, at a shelter. Along the Appalachian Trail, there are shelters every five to 15 miles, and there are primitive wooden structures, open-aired, sometimes double-deckered, where campers will often spend the night. And we are in the midst of a very big 
band bubble. of showers. Very big band of showers and a bubble, which is a big pocket of hikers. This linear community of trail hikers is a forgiving one, but one that enforces some protocols for weary travelers weighed down with heavy packs and dirt and sweat of walking across entire states of pitched peaks and rolling hills. That bears what I'm talking about. So they walk you in, they give you a basket for your laundry, a towel, and a pair of hospital scrubs, and they say, go take a shower, Put all your dirty clothes in here. You're not allowed to go anywhere else in the hostel until you do that. And then once you do, we'll hang out and talk. And that's all you could do. So it was a strange and clinical introduction uh, back into society. But as soon as you clean up and you see other people who have it, you go, okay, I get why you do that. Things are going great. We're having a really, really wonderful time. We smell really bad. Most of the time. And we're hungry all of the time, but this is just a really wonderful, odd, invigorating, tough and rewarding experience so far. If the Wi-Fi keeps working, we expect another update soon. But for now, if you're sitting in a snarl of traffic or withering in the summer heat, just remember, there are mountains and walking trails all over these parts. If not to hike, just to look at. And know that there are places we can still rise above. Thanks to Jesse Nicewanger for putting this together and to the Threadbare Skivvies and to Tift Merritt for giving us permission to use their soundtrack. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Artist Myra Kalman's career in picture books began with this song. Kalman is perhaps best known by adults for the now iconic New Yorker stand and other covers for The New Yorker magazine, or a dozen books, including And the Pursuit of Happiness and The Principles of Uncertainty. But she's written and illustrated 18 books for children. They are the inspiration for an exhibition opening this week at the High Museum. It's called The Pursuit of Everything. One of her books, Max Makes a Million, about a beat poet dog, is also being adapted for the stage. And Myra Kalman will be in town for the play's world premiere at the Alliance Theater. And the exhibition's opening again this weekend. But first, we reached out to her in New York. Hello. Hello. So your first picture book was called Stay Up Late, based on that song from the Talking Heads album, Little Creatures. You also, did you design the cover for that album or was it your husband, Tibor? No, Tibor had a design company called M&Co. So we had a relationship with the Talking Heads and with David. And when that book came out and we had little children, we knew we were in a, in a new era of what could children's books be. And it was a perfect union. Did you have children at that time? We had two little kids. So two little kids. So Which felt like, you know, t you know 20 little kids, but two little kids. <laughs> but so the books that you were reading for them, were you finding the things that you wanted? 
There are tremendously beautiful, of course, uh, children's books from all the eras. And, of course, we read the classics, William Steig and A.A. A. Millen and the Madeline book, The Bemelmans, which is my hero, and, and the Eloise books. Uh, there's no lack of phenomenal writing and phenomenal illustration for children. It wasn't as if there was a lack. It was just that I was an, an editorial illustrator and I thought, wouldn't it be lovely to do a, a whimsical children's book related to my style? So 18 books later, you clearly kept going. What did you like so much about making picture books? Uh, you know, I always say this, and, and I, and I ca- kind of mean it, not flippantly, that you can be really smart and really stupid for children. <laughs> and the parameters aren't the same as working for adults, which I also love to do. And basically, what you really want to do is share a story. You're, you're seeing the world, and you're looking and looking and looking, and then you're saying, this is what I see, and this is my story. So it's always a delight. It's never boring. And uh, for children, you really have to edit down to a certain number of pages, so you have to be concise. And I love that. Fewer words the better. Well, you wanted to be a writer when you were growing up. Is that correct? Yes, I very much thought that I would be a writer. And I had read Pippi Longstocking as a child, and I thought, this I can do this. The teenage years, the tumultuous, morbid, angst-ridden teenage years arrived, and so did the, and the writing reflected that. And I thought, this is really unbearable. Who would want to read this, this horrible, sad stuff? So I thought painting and, and drawing would be easier in the way and light, more lighthearted. So there were lots of people who I could look towards and say, ah, I can do this. I can incorporate some narrative, some typography, still loving books and relating to books. And being an illustrator is a great relationship to the spoken word and the written word. So how about when you had kids of your own? Did they inspire your books or were you trying to entertain them and trying things out with them? They were constantly my models. And, you know, I've written books about them, Lulu and Alex. That's who they really are. When they were little, they thought they had gone to Japan because I did a book about them in Japan. They'd never been there, but they were very happy to tell people that they had been there. The absurd and the real world, the mundane world, is always appealing to me. There's always an intersection. Kids are the most inspiring people on earth, for sure. Well, I see that in your drawings, your illustrations that are up on the walls of the High Museum now. Even that that first book, the... Stay up late. You know, you have a kind of apartment scene with this various members of a family, you know, doing their own little things inside of a room. And then this wailing baby in the corner sort of being pulled out. How do you come up with these little tableau, these little tiny worlds? That's the mystery of sitting down in front of a blank piece of paper and then saying, I have to fill this. The sense of organizing the world in a certain way, at a certain point, it's a delight to be the master of the universe. And that's what you are when you're sitting down in front of the paper. So I'm imagining music, I'm imagining movement. And I think that's one of the reasons that the play is going to happen, the musical is going to happen, Max Makes a Million, because everything is very kinetic. There's always the crazy stuff going on and and lovely stuff going on. So it's always a mix. Well, for listeners who don't know your books, who is Max? Max Stravinsky, the beat poet dog. He's a kind of beagle kind of dog that wears a, an askew hat and a brown coat. And in a way, he's me. He's a wanderer and a wanderer. And he travels around and makes poems and meets people. And a lot of the people that he meets in my book were actual people, you know, like Bruno, who paints invisible paintings, and he's a friend of mine who paints invisible paintings, and he's lovely and smart and charming. So it's a great opportunity to view the world from a kind of journalistic, artful way with a sense of humor and say, this is the world that we're in. Isn't this funny and strange? 
Well, Max's best friend Bruno makes invisible paintings for the Museum of Incredibly Modern Art. Right, <laughs> which is in New York City, of course. <laughs> well, that's the thing. These are so funny. I mean, for kids to get it on one level and to be delighted with them, but for parents who are re- or adults who are reading these books to think, oh my goodness, it saves me from reading Goodnight Moon. Nothing against Goodnight Moon. You no, know, nothing against Goodnight Moon. That's brilliant. By the way, and the and and she's a great great writer, but uh, but you know to be able to be playful with language and to make up songs and puns and and really to experiment and it's a wonderful thing for children to see. Oh, you can really play with the design and with with all of it, and the same for parents that it should be an inspiring conversation for them, without being too over you know too didactic or too moralistic or all those things. So uh, it should be open and have air in it. They're not dumbing down for children. Sometimes with heavier topics, I'm thinking of Fireboat. This was written after 9-11. Also, Thomas Jefferson, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Everything. In Fireboat, you illustrate planes flying toward the Twin Towers and, you know, this terrible explosion. In Thomas Jefferson's book, The Slave Quarters at Monticello, don't shy away from talking about Sally Hemings. So we see these images at the high, and a lot of parents try to shield kids from even remotely sensitive topics like those. Why did you wade in? So it would have been impossible not to do a children's book and not talk about this woman who he had six children with. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's a big part of the story, and it, it would be uh, you know unconscionable not to. I think it's inevitable that if you love children and you have a humanistic respect for children, that there's nothing that you can't talk about if you have a kind heart about it. So I don't want to be gruesome or miserable and and scary. But I think that there's nothing better than being honest in a loving, kind way. Children are so curious and have so many questions about things. And There's no reason not to tell the truth. My guest is the artist and storyteller and illustrator Myra Kalman, an Alliance Theatre play inspired by her work, Max Makes a Million, and a high museum exhibition of her illustrations and books for children open this week. Almost 30 years after readers met Max, the Alliance Theatre is turning this into a play. You have collaborated with plenty of people, from Kirsten Gillibrand on a book about women who helped get the right to vote, books with Daniel Handler, the author of the Limini Snicket books, your son Alex, and many others. So what was it like to do this collaboration with a director and and actors and a playwright giving over your book? Well, it's interesting because usually I'm obsessively controlling and I, you know, probably maybe for good reasons or maybe for bad. But in this instance, I thought this was an opportunity to let people take my work, create something, and then we'll see what it is. I mean, everybody who's involved is so smart and so talented and, you know, they understand my aesthetic. Otherwise, they wouldn't have taken this on in the first place and also the sensibility. So philosophically aesthetically, you know, humoristically, I think we were all in tune. And I, so I, I had very little to do with it, almost nil and or nil. And so this is going to be a, a tremendously wonderful surprise to come and see it as music and dance. And because I'm, because I'm also embarking on my fledgling theatrical dance career. 
Okay, so tell me more about that, because somebody who says you're obsessively controlling about your work, your output, I know drawings aren't static, but once you create them, you turn them over and they're there. But dance is a completely different thing. Acting is a different kind of high wire act. What is that? What, what do you have to let go of to do something like that? Your dignity. <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> Truly. You really have to say, I may look like a fool. I may make a mistake. I may literally forget my lines or fall down. That falling down hasn't happened yet, but I'm sure it's going to happen in this next performance. And so you have to say, I, it may be a failure. It may be, you know, you really have to give up the control and you have to give up what the sense of success is and accomplishment and say, experimenting in this is fantastic. Why are you letting yourself <laughs> be on stage? I don't know. It's a <laughs> terrible, terrible question. <laughs> You know, I'm torn. I probably want the, I, you know, I'm, I want to hide and then I want to be out there. It's, it's you know, it's a, co- a complex thing to be a person. Yeah, but it, that also sounds like something that a lot of artists go through. You want to be out, you want your yeah. work out there in the world, but then you've got to make it. I mean, is, right. that, is yeah. that a challenge for you? Always, of course, because you just think that this is this time, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be what you, ima- you know, what you have in your soul. It'll never be realized in that way. And that's, you know, it's sh- it, the good news is that it doesn't stop me and that I'm continually producing work because you could be paralyzed and say, I can't possibly do this. But something in me says, OK, I'm going to continue. And, you know, I have enough positive reinforcement in many parts of my life to allow myself in this iteration to to see if I succeed or fail. And it's an interesting, you, le- you just learn a lot. How do, how do you empty your brain of all of those voices that say you're not going to do it right long enough to do it? I guess that's practice. I'm really good for, uh, you know, I'm really good at emptying my brain. I, I have an, I'm an empty brain expert. <laughs> how do you do it? And I think, you know, I could give courses in it. And I think that one of the things that you, you know, you do, walking is an incredible way to empty your brain. And really just, and especially for women, you know, to turn off a kind of loop of, I'm a failure, this isn't going to work out. I think, it, you know, I, maybe it's a stupid generalization to say that women have it more than men, but clearly, you know, the, the life of doubting yourself, you, you can turn that off and see what happens instead. Yeah, I wouldn't know anything about that, Myra. <laughs> I never hear those yeah. things. <laughs> right, exactly. And, well, you know, and also the, da- the doubting voice and, and the doubting voice serves a purpose because you really have to make decisions and you say, OK, out of all of the terrible decisions, what's the least terrible? So th- that's an, also a process, you know, that that kind of panic and worry and then stopping and working. Working is the only solution to all of that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so it's the motivator for the work and it's also the thing that makes it go away in some level. Right. There is a pop quiz that you created, and it's on the wall as part of the exhibit at the High. The last question there is, how many mistakes did you make today? (laughs) Every time I open my mouth. And you know what's interesting is that uh, I've gotten so many letters Well, yeah, I was going to ask. You left your address there. It's incredible. What did they say? Hundreds and hundreds. Oh, the range of mistakes is if, you know, they make a mistake or, and whatever it could be, I wore the wrong sock or then they blame other people for their mistakes and say, I made no mistakes, but my sister made many, you know, so the, the range of what you consider in your life a mistake, I find really fascinating. 
because what does that even mean and what does embarrassment mean? So we, you know, we go through life terrified of making mistakes and yet we make them from morning till night. I have, to, I mean, I can't think of anything specific. You know, maybe I was short-tempered with somebody this morning already. Is that a mistake? I don't know. So we didn't get to talk about another new project of yours, Cake. This is a new cookbook with Barbara Scott Goodman. But we, we see in the show at The High some of the things that you love. Cake, for one thing. Dogs. Hats. The founders. Thomas Jefferson in particular. What are some of the other things that you love that you'd like to leave us with today? Well, I, I actually want to leave you with another book that I did, which was Sarah Berman's Closet. And it, it's a book about my mother's This is your mom's closet. closet. Yeah. It's a, and it's a, a, a book that came out of an exhibit at my son's museum. So Alex Kalman is my son, and he uh, is now an adult and has his own museum on Cortland Alley in New York City. And so we installed a replica of my mother's closet after she died. We kept all her things. And she only wore white, by the way. But that's just one aspect of it. So the show traveled from his tiny alleyway niche to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We are always talking about how marvelous and amazing it is that somebody who had a very humble life and had a very humble attitude towards things is such a tremendous inspiration and that the daily life of of just the things that you do and how you really have to pay attention and create beauty around you that means something to you so she was tremendously inspiring in that way and so I love her more than cake <laughs> well, and it's so beautiful. I've seen photographs of this exhibit. It's just completely ordered and spare and almost, it almost looks curated in a way. Why put that on display? Your mother's closet. What What is it about that that epitomizes who she was? I think that when somebody has so much, such mindful attention to something with such a sense of humor that and beauty that you, uh, you know, what else do you need in life? It's interesting to think of you looking at your mother's closet or you have as, as a child, you know, seeing works of art in many things. Is that what you're hoping to inspire for children in your books? I think so. I think that the sense of waking up in the morning and that the day is a complete surprise. I mean, you have things to do, but you really don't know what you're going to see. And that that is the thing that keeps you happy basically, because there's a lot of stuff to make you sad. So if you're really looking and you are enchanted by things, um, you have a good chance of being okay in your life. You must be the best grandma possible. <laughs> wait, wait, would you call my daughter and, you didn't no, tell she her that. that? She knows that. And tell her that. No, she knows that. And I write a letter. I have a three-year-old uh, granddaughter who I write... A letter to every week since she was born. And so she has a, she's got a book. They're on view at the high. Some of those letters are on view at the high. That's right. Which I, gives you know, us a course. little picture. I thank you for a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad we had the chance to speak with you, Meyer Kalman. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was great. Her work is the inspiration for an exhibition at the High Museum called The Pursuit of Everything, opening this weekend and running through September 15th. A stage adaptation of her book, Max Makes a Million, opens at the Alliance Theater on June 20th and runs until July 21st. You can see some images of her work and find out more on both shows at gpbnews.org.
We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. It is Juneteenth, also known as Freedom Day, commemorating the ending of slavery in the U.S. It was on this date in 1865 when Union soldiers arrived in Galveston, Texas, to announce slavery had been abolished. Some two years after President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Today we're looking at the tradition and its history with Dinah Berry. She's professor of history and African and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin, author of four books on the history of slavery, including The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. Dinah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Virginia. Can you pick up on that story? It was General Gordon Granger who led Union trips to Galveston. Was that the intention, announcing the abolition of slavery? Yes, it was. And what, there are actually some questions around whether or not he stood um, on this platform and read the, the proclamation out loud. Um, there's some people that are now questioning that, but we do know that enslaved people in Texas were read that proclamation in some parts of the state, and they were told that they were free. Um, this was in, on June 19th of 1865. Some of them were in the fields, on their plantations, um, in the plantation homes, working, and their enslavers told them, you know, you can be free, you can go where you want, you can, you can work for yourselves. And some enslaved people said that they felt like on that day that they were turned out like cattle and they were just turned loose. That's a phrase that I see over and over again. Some of them, you know, celebrated and literally left from that moment forward. They wanted to leave the site of enslavement. Others were confused, um, didn't really know where to go. Some wanted to find their loved ones that were taken from them or sold away from them. Others wanted to hurry up and go um, legalize their marriages. They went to the courthouses, to the justice of the peace, to try to find ways to solidify their unions. Others um, wanted to just do anything but slave labor. So why, one, did it take so long for word to reach Galveston, Texas? Why was that the end of the known universe there as far as slavery was concerned? You know, there's a lot of different theories about why it took that long. Um, some of them is that enslaved enslavers in Texas felt like if enslaved people were going to still work for them, they're not going to. They were not going to tell them that they were free, and they just kept on working as if nothing had happened. So this had not leaked into that population at all. Word that that slaves had been freed in the rest of the country. You know, that's a that's a very good question. There's there's this this notion among enslaved people, and scholars have called it the Grapevine Telegraph, where there's word and information sort of passed around and enslaved people found news. They had heard rumblings of emancipation, rumblings of freedom, and had been fighting for it from the moment that they were captured. But it wasn't until they saw legal action, they saw the end of this, they, they learned that the Civil War was over. Um, and, and really, to be honest, quite technically speaking, enslaved people were all free by December 6th, of 1865, which is when the 13th Amendment was officially ratified. Mm -hmm. How many people are we talking about in this population in Texas? About 250,000. Wow. Yes. So that many yes. people still held or bound or behaving as if they were still enslaved when they were in, in, in effect free. Yes. And you know, I wanted to, to get back onto something you said about why it took so long. You know, this was a two year window. Um, when you mark that from the Emancipation Proclamation of January 1st, most Southerners, particularly those in the states of rebellion, which were the 11 states that seceded from the Union, did not believe, nor did they enslavers, nor did they free their enslaved people in, on January 1st of 1863. They didn't believe Lincoln was their president. So 
very, um, very few enslaved people were freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. So what happened to, in effect, free all of those who were held by people who didn't believe it? They stayed, the ones that were in 1863, they stayed enslaved until 1865 when the war ended. So what many people talk about um, Lincoln as the great emancipator, but Lincoln didn't actually really free enslaved people because their Southerners did not recognize Lincoln. So they kept on working as enslaved people, or they were running away, they were participating in the war. It, this was a period of, of great chaos because of the Civil War. And until it ended in April of 1865, um, African Americans recognized and started seeing the weakness of the system and realized that this system was coming to an end. Hmm. So it wasn't the great emancipator, it was many great emancipators like General Gordon Granger, in effect. Yes. Yes, and individual enslavers who, from the American Revolutionary generation of the late 18th century, who started manumitting or freeing their enslaved people or giving um, giving um, gradual acts of emancipation that, you know, by the time you reach age 18, you can have your freedom, or the children that you have born to me, you know, are free at age 21. So you see after the American Revolution, and there's this, there's this connection between wars and freedom, right? Um, sometimes wars create freedom and sometimes wars cause more constraints. Right. So now you see enslaved people um, from the colonial period all the way through any of the battles that were fought um, through the Civil War, fighting for their freedom and looking at the spirit, this period of of, um, of upheaval as a space for them to, to claim their freedom. What was the reality of freedom for slaves after June 19th? What, what changed for them? For some, nothing changed. For some, they 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 were put in labor contracts with their former enslavers. Um, the Freedmen's Bureau came to the South. They sent agents to the South. Um, they were supposed to help negotiate labor contracts. They were, there were stipulations such as the black codes throughout all the Southern states that essentially sort of re-enslaved black people. They had legislation that was very similar to the laws of slavery, where they had to actually refer to their employer as master and, and they had contracts where they worked, but they really, they lived in the same cabin. Some of, the, some of them lived in the same cabins. Some of them worked the same fields. Some of them cooked the same meals in the same house that they had when they were, when they were enslaved. Others completely overturned their lives. They packed up their, their, their few belongings and they headed to different communities looking for loved ones and trying to find places to live on their own land. They established um, black towns. The establishment of black towns came in the 1870s, 1880s, where African-Americans were trying to learn and live as freed people um, away from whites. Um, some of them went to the North and received education. So life changed for some, and for others it didn't. Can you go into labor contract a little, please? Is that what, like the sharecropping contract? Is that what you mean by yes. that? Yes, absolutely. So there were contracts um, where they were they could live in the house and rent the land, um, but they really didn't get a port. They weren't paid wages. So you have this is where we, we see um, African Americans falling into debt peonage, where they're in debt indebted to the labor of the, the the crops that they're producing on the the estates that they used to be enslaved on. So this is a system that moves us into Jim Crow, um, into the Jim Crow era, which lasted up until the 1960s. And African-Americans were often put in, in positions that kept them subservient. We know that in 1866, a year after um, enslaved people were free, we know that the KKK was formed in uh, Paluski, Tennessee. 
um, as a sort of a white fraternal a fraternity that became a way to control and patrol uh, formerly enslaved people. Um, and they sort of ruled the land in, that, in different parts of the South. Um, uh, vigilante justice, as some people refer to it. We also know that the Black Codes were in effect in 1866. And African-Americans also started celebrating Juneteenth. And some of their first festivals occurred in 1866. Yeah. How were, what were those early celebrations like? Oh, they were wonderful. They were, from what I've read and the, and the, the images I've seen, um, African-Americans, this was their Independence Day. You know, just like the 4th of July is the United States Independence, Juneteenth became African-Americans Independence Day. They had barbecues, they um, sang songs, they had parades. They also shared stories and talked about the people that came before them. They recognized people that had been enslaved. They told the young kids about their relatives and their descendants and told them to be proud about the people that they came from and that they survived the institution of slavery. We're learning about the origins and traditions of Juneteenth with Dinah Berry. She's an author and professor at UT Austin. How do these traditions differ from contemporary celebrations of Juneteenth? You know, I think what's missing today, and this is just from living in Texas and being to, and having the, the opportunity to visit and go to some of these celebrations, I think we've lost a little bit of the historical piece where um, children are learning about the history of slavery. Um, I think back in the early early celebrations, it was very clear because they had relatives, they had parents and grandparents and great-grandparents that had been enslaved, that the elders would tell stories so they wouldn't forget about what life was like during enslavement. As we've moved to four, five, six generations out, um, those stories are not passed down as much. It's not to say that they aren't, because these celebrations differ. Um, more than 38 states today celebrate Juneteenth. And there's, they do it in various ways. I think what I would like, me personally as a historian, would like to see it to continue to be reflective in the way that it was in 1866 and even in the early, early late 19th century where African Americans were closer to the history of slavery and they talked about um, remembering, um, remembering about the institution and recognizing and honoring those that survived it. Well, I do want to point out that in 2011, Georgia became the 37th state to recognize Juneteenth at its state capitol, but it is still not a national federal holiday. My colleague Leah Fleming, she's host of Morning Edition here at GPB, spoke with State Senator Donzella James, who's trying to make that happen. There's still Confederate holidays, so Emancipation Proclamation finally for the whole nation, and now it's called Juneteenth, should be celebrated here as well. Why do you think there is an ambivalence or hesitation among legislators to recognize Juneteenth as a state or national holiday, for that matter? Most of the states um, of the 11 states that seceded from the Union freed their enslaved people in 1865 in April and officially in December. So a lot of the other states and state representatives feel like, why should we celebrate Juneteenth when in our state, our enslaved people were in fact free after the Civil War. That's one of the, the barriers. Another barrier is um, I think people are hesitant to recognize the history of slavery in this country. Um, it's a stain on our, our nation's um, story and it's something that makes people very uncomfortable. I've, I've, I've experienced this for most of my career in talking about this, this history. Um, and also people think that the 4th of July is the, the time that we need to celebrate. And they don't want to look at issues of when African-Americans did not consider the 4th of July their holiday. Um, one only has to listen to Frederick Douglass's or read Frederick Douglass' speech, what, um, what for the slave is the 4th of July. 
And I think that's a very powerful speech that, you know, that some Juneteenth festivals actually participate in reading aloud. And what's interesting here, though, five st- the five states who don't recognize Juneteenth, Hawaii, New Hampshire, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, those were not slaveholding states. So, you know, part of Juneteenth, it's, it's as if many African-Americans celebrate and recognize it, but, but a lot of white Americans scarcely recognize it, scarcely know it. So if you're talking about acknowledging history, do you think this is more of the, well, we weren't participants in that part of history, so we don't need to celebrate? Absolutely, I do. And, and that's always, that's often the case. And that's one of the reasons why people don't feel like we need to educate and teach people about the history of slavery. It's, oh, that was a long time ago. You know, none of my descendants were involved in that. So let's just sort of move beyond that. Well, you have said in many of your articles that your public press appearances talking about your books, that you welcome public debate about these kind of issues. Have you seen, however, successful examples of that going on around Juneteenth, which is often, you know, a celebration, go to the park and have a barbecue? Yeah, I actually have. Um, And I don't know if that's really a function of me living in Texas, um, because it's very popular in Texas. And it's not just you don't just see African-Americans at these celebrations. These are community events. Um, which I think is beautiful, and um, and you have people that are recognizing this the history that Juneteenth represents. So I think that I, as I as you mentioned, I do believe we need to have these conversations, and I think it's important because you know our history as as an as American history is not necessarily a history um, that has all positive stories or all happy endings. But it's, it's part of our history, and we need to have these conversations. Donnie, you mentioned one of the things you think is missing is a sense of history. You know, the oral tradition that was in those early experiences of Juneteenth and those early celebrations. What are, if you could pick out just a couple of the myths or the misunderstandings about the institution of slavery that we carry on from generation to generation? Well, one myth that we've, we've sort of talked about briefly is this whole notion that 1863 was when African Americans received their freedom. And that's not, you know, they did not, Lincoln did not free, he may have issued a proclamation that claimed or stated that African Americans were all enslaved people in these states were to be free, but they were not given their freedom. And I think that's a very important distinction and myth that people make assumptions about Lincoln as the great emancipator. He made statements um, that if he could free one enslaved person and have our union solid, he would. If he could free none uh, and still have the, the states come back to the union, or if he could free all the enslaved people, his, his main purpose was to focus on the union. He wanted this 11 states to come back to the union. It was not about slavery. Um, another one is that there's this notion that um, African Americans were happy and to be enslaved, and that they were well taken care of. I have I've had in the past, not recently, but students say, well, you know, it's good for them to have come to this country because they would have been stuck in quote unquote third world Africa. And I always respond to students and say, well, look at all the natural resources and all of the the human capital that was stolen from Africa. What kind of nation, what kind of country, what kind, I mean, there's multiple countries there, but look at the, at the continent of Africa, what would that have been had it not been colonized? Had African, have Africans not been taken? Oh, another myth is that um, there's this dichotomy between house slaves and field slaves, enslaved people, and that all the dark-skinned slaves were out in the fields and all the light-skinned slaves were inside, and that's not the case. That is sort of a myth that came out of, the, I would say, maybe the 1960s, 50s. I'm, I'm not quite sure the origins of that. 
but there was not this strict color divide within the plantation communities. Well, so much of that history depends on the teller. The New York Times published an article about a geography textbook referring to Africans brought to American plantations as workers or indentured servants rather than as slaves. So as a history professor, what is the most important thing you stress to your students about America's past? The first thing I do in any African-American history class um, is I start off in Africa and I look at the history of African people as being free. Uh, living in communities that had universities, that had tax systems, that had um, very, very sophisticated societies, and then they were taken into and captured into enslavement. So I taught, I start off with freedom, and most people start off with enslavement. I start off with freedom, and I move into captivity, enslavement, and and show all the different places and spaces where Africans and then later African Americans were fighting for their freedom from the moment of capture until the moment of freedom. Dinah Berry, I want to thank you so much and happy Juneteenth. Thank you. You too. That is author and University of Texas at Austin African History Professor. She is author of four books on slavery, including The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. And we will leave you with the what is known as the Black National Anthem. Lift every voice and sing. Lift every voice and sing Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.